Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, the NDP wins in Manitoba. This is the most difficult thing that I've ever done in my life, and the real work hasn't even begun yet. Reaction to Wab Canoe's historic election night from Ottawa. It is uh, uh, a good thing to have another progressive premier. Today is a bad day for Conservatives, but a great day for the people of Manitoba. And from Winnipeg. This government's goals, many of their goals, can be our goals and are our goals at a city level. And gender identity and the Charter. With Saskatchewan about to be the latest province using the notwithstanding clause, we hear the federal perspective from Justice Minister Arif Farani. This is Primetime Politics. Hello, I'm Andrew Thompson. Manitoba will soon have Canada's first First Nations Provincial Premier. Wab Canoe and the NDP winning a majority last night and unseating the Progressive Conservatives, a landmark election result that is reverberating today on Parliament Hill. It is uh, uh, a good thing to have another progressive premier across the country that we're going to be able to work with on uh, issues of affordability, issues of housing, uh, issues of reconciliation, obviously, but uh, a lot of good work that we're going to be able to do together. Today is a bad day for Conservatives, but a great day for Manitobans. I've got to say what an incredible historic campaign by the Premier-elect Wab Canoe. The people in Manitoba now have some hope. They have got a provincial government now and a Premier-elect who's going to defend the healthcare system, put people first. Well, for more coverage of Wab Canoe's win and what it means, let's go to Winnipeg and Michael Serapio. Michael. Well, Andrew, really interesting to hear the reaction in Ottawa today to the provincial election taking place here in Manitoba. As we come to you once again this evening from Winnipeg, this time around the Forks, and without a doubt, the election of Wab Canoe and the NDP is history in the making. For the first time ever, Canada will have its first First Nations provincial premier, something I asked Wab Canoe about during his first news conference today at the Manitoba legislature. You know, the morning after the, the big victory, what, will you, what can you say about this moment of history in Canada? I think educators, residential school survivors, business leaders, so many people have stepped up over the past decade to change Canada for the better. And I think that I am extraordinarily hopeful for what this country is going to be like when the children of today who celebrate Orange Shirt Day, who learn a more accurate account of our country's history, what Manitoba and Canada is going to be like when they are the decision makers for these places that we love. And so as a person who's earned the high uh, honour of getting a chance to serve in government, it's my intention to move the ball forward so that that future generation can do even more powerful things than we can imagine today. Does that create more weight for you? Does that make it more difficult for you? I've been asked to serve as Premier. I don't know how much more weight you could put on somebody. I mean, this is the most difficult thing that I've ever done in my life. And the real work hasn't even begun yet. So I'm going to treat this job with the utmost of 
reverence and the humility that I believe will be necessary to serve you, the people of Manitoba. And of course, I hope to make a, a positive contribution for all Canadians as well. Wapkanu says his government's first order of business is to address health care, but there's also pressure for his incoming government to search the Prairie Green landfill, where it is believed by many that the bodies of two missing Indigenous women were dumped, a search opposed by the outgoing PC government and many Manitobans. Can I follow up on the, uh, the landfill search? Because Probe Research just a week ago uh, came out and basically said Manitobans are divided on it, almost 50-50, as to whether or not uh, they believe that it is worthwhile to spend the money on a search. What do you say to Manitobans who don't agree with investing that type of dollar? I would say that we don't have to agree on everything in order to do the big things together, like fixing our health care system. And I think that's a message that we campaigned on. And I think the results of uh, the election last night show that Manitobans want us to focus on health care. They want us to deliver affordability relief. Sorry, sorry, but I'm asking about the landfill search, though. Yeah. And, of course, we don't have to agree on everything in order to do the big things together. I'm going to ask perhaps more of a personal reflection, because on that stage with you last night, not only your wife, but your mother, who you've written about, your three sons, uh, all smiles. What did that moment mean to you to have them up there with you? What do you hope they take away from that moment? My wife, my mom, my kids had the toughest job in this election, which is that they had to put up with the attack ads without the ability to respond. And what I was able to tell them last night is that the people of Manitoba chose to reject that. And the people of Manitoba are consequently good people. And so whatever it is that you want to do in your life, and this is going out to every young person out there at this point, whatever you want to do in your life is possible if you choose to believe in the goodness of others and you choose to put in the work necessary to achieve your aims. And I would add that my Uncle Fred was on stage with us too. He is the last of uh, my dad's siblings who is still with us, and I'm very, very proud that he was there to be a, a, a family and, and spiritual support for us. And... Uh, you have many questions about what it means for me. Think about what yesterday meant for him, who was in St. Mary's Residential School, who experienced the worst of it in our country's history. So whatever feeling I have uh, pales in comparison to how humble I feel uh, to be walking in the trail that was blazed by others in our province. And there are so many people and in every community, every walk of life, veterans, public servants, you know, who've done great things. John Norquay, Louis Riel, you know, and the list goes on and on and on. Um, you talked about expectations. There's uh, <laughs> a lot to live up to here in Manitoba, and uh, I hope to be able to serve in a good way. So Wab Canoe and the NDP will take over the reins of government. And the changes don't end there. The Liberal leader in Manitoba, Dougal Lamont, well, he lost his seat last night and so will not be returning to the legislature, also resigning as party leader. And also resigning as leader is Heather Stephenson of the Manitoba PCs. Let's take a listen to a bit of her concession speech from last night. This election was a very important one and the historic nature of Mr. Canoe's victory must be acknowledged here this evening. Wab, I hope that your win tonight 
inspires a future generation of Indigenous youth to get involved in our democratic process, not just here in Manitoba, but right across the country. Wab, congratulations for that. But friends, it is with a heavy heart tonight that I am announcing that I will be stepping down as the leader of the Progressive Conservative Party of Manitoba. And I look forward to meeting with caucus and the party executive to prepare the path forward from tonight. And I look forward to working with the party to ensure a smooth process is in place to replace me as your leader. It has been the honor of my life serving the people of Manitoba with the many roles that I have held over the years. And I thank all Manitobans from the bottom of my heart for giving me the privilege to serve as the first women premier in this beautiful province of ours. Thank you so much tonight. Important to note that Heather Stephenson will remain an MLA. Let's get back to the NDP, though, because they have secured enough seats to form a majority government. And one of their more seasoned MLAs is Nahani Fontaine. She's been a longtime advocate for Indigenous justice. So last night at NDP HQ, we spoke about the significance of Wab Canoe's victory. Ms. Fontaine, thank you for joining us. Congratulations. Thank you very much. It's a, and a very exciting evening, and it's what dreams are made of, really. We made history tonight, so it's quite impressive. Well, that's where, actually where I want to begin our conversation because history has been made here. And I'm wondering what that means to someone like you who has been an advocate for an Indigenous rights, for Indigenous justice, for the majority of her adult life. What does this moment mean to you? I'll tell you a quick story. In 1991, there was a march it was an indigenous march uh, in respect of Oka. And my grandmother was walking in that march. And it was all indigenous people walking down Memorial to the ledge. And a non-indigenous woman spit at my grandmother and called her a squaw, which is one of the most derogatory things you can call an indigenous woman. Who would have ever imagined years later that we would have elected the first First Nation Premier in our history. Who would have thought all those years later that our NDP caucus has the most Indigenous MLAs anywhere in the country? It's quite extraordinary and really I want to give honour to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that brought us on this path. I want to honor my cousin Phil Fontaine that brought us on this path because it was a path that Canadians and Manitobans have been on for a long time and tonight is the culmination of all of that. It's an act of reconciliation. This is what true reconciliation looks like. Does that put pressure on your government from Indigenous communities in Manitoba that have been looking for a sign of progress? Does that put pressure on your government? Everything puts pressure on a government, but what it does is it allows Indigenous peoples to see themselves reflected. 
They've never seen what they just saw with Indigenous people on that stage. They've never seen an Indigenous Premier. They've never seen Indigenous MLAs. They see themselves reflected in the politics now. And that means they're engaged. And it means that we can all move together to create the province that we can all be proud of. All of us, together. Obviously, when you looked at the polling numbers, Manitoba is what healthcare is the number one concern. But a search of the Prairie Green Landfill could clearly emerge as an issue that people want to talk about as well. What action are Manitobans going to see on that now? Well, they're going to see action. And I think that our leader, Wab Canoe, has made it explicitly clear that we are going to work with the families. I've met with the families many, many times, and we've always had the commitment that we are going to listen to the families, we're going to work with the families, and they're going to see action. And, you know, more importantly, I think what the families can take from this is that Manitobans, as a province, reject that divisive narrative and that divisive uh, attempt at dividing us. And I think that they can take comfort in that Manitobans are also standing with them. And in terms of health care as the other issue they emerge out of this campaign, what's the promise to Manitobans? That we're going to listen. I think it was made explicitly clear almost every single day of this campaign that we understand that health care is the number one priority for Manitobans. We take that seriously. We have the expertise in our caucus to get the job done and that we're going to work with those that are on the front lines. We're going to work with nurses and doctors and allied health professionals, and we're going to make health care better in this province. Every single one of us heard it on the doorstep, not just during this election, but for years. That's our commitment, and we've made that explicitly clear during the campaign. And now we get the chance to make it a reality. Ms. Fontaine, a very big night for your party. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much. Wab Canoe won his majority government by focusing on the Manitoba capital region. Now, the NDP have always had support in the downtown ridings of Winnipeg, but in order to form government, they needed to bust through into the Winnipeg suburbs. And that's exactly what happened. So today we caught up with Winnipeg's mayor, Scott Gillingham, to get an idea of his hopes for this new provincial government. Mayor Gillingham, thank you for the time. Thank you for the opportunity to be with you. So you're already on record as saying that you're optimistic about what Winnipeg can achieve with this new provincial government. What makes you optimistic? I think uh, this government and, and myself and our city council share a lot of the same priorities. You know, we, we both want to focus on addressing homelessness in our city. There are too many people living on the streets of Winnipeg right now who are living unsheltered. I know that's a problem in cities across Canada, but, um, but I know that uh, Premier-elect Wab Canoe you know, and I have spoken about the fact that one of the top things we want to address together is homelessness. And then beyond there, there's other priorities as well. Investment in transit, investment in the city's infrastructure. So I, I think that this government's goals, many of their goals, can be our goals and are our goals at a city level. Okay, now let's focus on homelessness right now because as that is an issue, you point to the Houston model. Can you talk to us about what that model actually is and how you see the province moving in to help Winnipeg on that? Well, uh, Premier-elect Canoe has also spoken about the Houston model, so we do share that in common. What's, what's uh, important about the, the model Houston uses is it's one plan. It's a shared plan that all governments and all agencies, the non-profit sector and the private sector, they all work off the same coordinated plan. 
It's a housing first approach, so people are taken uh, really from the streets, put into housing with wraparound supports, and, uh, and then all the data is shared. So all the agencies involved in the plan and the governments are all working uh, in, a, in a coordinated manner where they're you know, disclosing data and information to one another uh, readily. And, and so, you know, I've often said also, you know, a business doesn't have you know, three business plans, they've got one plan. A team doesn't have two or three game plans, they've got one plan. For us to really make an impact and really help people get off the streets and get to the supports they need, we're going to have to work off one plan. So one plan on that. So what is the, the, the bar of success here? When you think about what you want to achieve for Winnipeg and this incoming government, what will the bar of success be for this relationship between you and Wapkanoo? I think if we can point to, first of all, identifying shared goals and then you know, being able to measure our progress together on, on the shared goals. Um, homelessness, of course, is one. You know, have, we, have we housed? Are there more people housed you know, a year, two, three years from now than we have housed today? Are there fewer people on the street? Uh, that, that, that's an important metric. Um, we look at our transit master plan. Are there more people riding transit? Do we have a better transit system? Have, are we implementing stages of our transit master plan together with the province of Manitoba and the city of Winnipeg? And so by identifying the goals and then measuring our, our progress on the goals, we'll be able to determine, you know, how, how we're doing. Of course, uh, this government, this incoming government, has built its success on Winnipeg and, and winning in the surrounding suburbs. Do you believe, do you think that will give Winnipeg a, a, an outsized uh, influence on the, the Premier? Well, Manitoba is unique in that, uh, compared to every other province uh, across the nation, is there's one major city. We do have other cities, and all cities, of course, and all municipalities in this province are important, but you know, over, is it close to 60%, uh, just under 60%, I think, of the population of Manitoba lives uh, within Winnipeg, or certainly within the capital region. Um, the majority of, of Manitoba's GDP is, is generated here in the capital region with, with Winnipeg being the heart. And so um, just by virtue of the way our province is set up with Winnipeg being the big city, uh, a lot of focus uh, you know, happens, happens here. And so we'll, we'll work really hard with this provincial government. I'm looking forward to, to working with the new government and uh, for the people of Winnipeg. Mayor Gilliam, thank you for the time. Thank you so much. Shortly after our interview with Mayor Gillingham, Wapkanu was actually asked about the homelessness issue in Winnipeg. Take a listen to what he had to say during his first news conference. I think everyone in Manitoba knows that we need to do better when it comes to homelessness in our city and in our province. And I think uh, partnering with uh, other leaders such as Mayor Gillingham is going to be very important so that Winnipeg's downtown, which is Manitoba's downtown, is a place that everyone enjoys and not only that everyone enjoys when you go to a Jets game or concert but where everybody has dignity. Now as we end our coverage this evening from Winnipeg we do want to note that in Ottawa today we did hear from the Trudeau government they are now committing $740,000 to do a feasibility study into whether or not the Prairie Green landfill search can actually happen. We'll continue to follow the story for you right here on CPAC and on Primetime Politics but for now Andrew back to you in Ottawa. All right Michael thank you that is Michael Serapio in Winnipeg. In Saskatchewan, the bill invoking the Constitution's notwithstanding clause over school pronouns and gender identity is expected next week. Premier Scott Mope says he's moving ahead to override an injunction, despite the federal justice minister calling for a pause. 
And with me now is Justice Minister Arif Virani. Minister, good to see you. Thank you. Nice to have you. Nice to be on. So we have the Premier of Saskatchewan talking in terms of parental rights and the best interests of children. Now, you've replied in your own words, uh, talking about violating uh, individual rights, that this should not be a decision taken lightly, that there is a risk of irreparable harm to children. So you've staked out your position on the policy itself and you've called for a pause. But beyond that, what are your options uh, when it comes to opposing Premier Mo's decision? Because of course, as you know, provinces do have this constitutional power. So we're, we're conscious of the constitutional power that the provinces have that's uh, safeguarded under the constitution as it's been enacted. But I think I'll just reiterate what I said earlier, which is that as an elected leader, I'm not here to pit communities or uh, against one another or sow any further division in what is already a divisive issue. I approach this also from the lens of being a parent, Andrew, and I'm the parent of two young, uh, young boys, and parents have a right to want to be involved in fundamental decisions about their children. That's absolutely normal and that's to be expected. Uh, but what I'm very concerned about is inserting a very blunt instrument such as the notwithstanding clause in a situation where a judge in Saskatchewan has already rendered a decision about granting relief that is hard to get because the question is serious and the potential for irreparable harm is there. For a very small group of people, I think that's really what's critical for Canadians to understand, is that the community of LGBTQ people, two people is small. The community of children in that community is even smaller. The community of children that don't feel comfortable having these conversations and feel that their safety is in jeopardy is even smaller. And it's those people that are vulnerable that I think need some protection. That's what the court found, and that's what I think should have given Scott Moe pause to think about his next steps. Instead of pausing, he's chosen to go to the extreme and invoke the notwithstanding clause, which to my mind is fat pressing fast forward when the pause button is what should have been uh, utilized. Okay, well, let me ask you about that court process. Of course, there has been the injunction, but the process is ongoing with this constitutional challenge uh, by opponents of this policy for parental consent for youth under 16. Will your government escalate its legal involvement if the matter moves up to the Supreme Court? Well, we're not at that stage yet, so I just want to make sure that we're crystal clear. We don't even have a situation where a law has been invoked. We've got a policy. That w that's what was being litigated at the injunction stage. What Scott Moe has indicated is that he wants to reconvene the legislature, pass a law, and invoke the notwithstanding clause. So it is premature to sort of speculate about whether that will happen for sure and what happens after that, if that does indeed occur, whether there's litigation for a potential involvement by a different level of government. But what I'll say right now is what I've been saying consistently, what the Prime Minister has been saying is that we don't agree with the preemptive use of the notwithstanding clause because it short circuits what is meant to be a dialogue between the courts and parliaments and it short circuits the ability of judges to weigh in with their views on the constitutionality of a measure. That's an important sort of process that needs to be respected and should be respected. And we've said quite firmly as a federal government, we would never preemptively use the notwithstanding clause. It should be a tool of last resort, not a tool of first instance. Okay, uh, let me then ask you, if, if there is then perhaps a move for a second injunction specifically against this upcoming bill that formally invokes uh, Section 33 of the Charter, is that uh, a legal proceeding that the federal government could involve itself in? 
Well, there's, what I'll say is that I'm not going to speculate about what we may or may not do in some future hypothetical case. I'm going to say to you that we're following the case very, very closely as we're following other instances around the country. We've been quite clear in terms of our stated intention and our stated views on the, on the utilization of the notwithstanding clause. So, so I'll, I'll stand by what we've already said with respect to when it should and when it shouldn't be used. But I think what's really important here, uh, Andrew, is that there's, there are times right now, particularly now, where we're seeing a lot of division in Canadian society. We know where division leads. It can lead to intolerance. It can lead to hatred. It can sometimes lead to violence. When you're seeing that much division and you pick your issue, whether it's religious intolerance, whether it's intolerance on sexual orientation, whether it's intolerance of indigenous communities, etc., when we see that kind of division, it requires us to take a pause and to try and reduce that division and have these, these conversations that need to, need to be had. And what I would say is that that listening exercise, it takes time and it's sometimes difficult, but that is not a listening exercise that Premier Mo seems to want to engage in. By invoking the notwithstanding clause, he is short-circuiting that conversation and imposing a blunt instrument such as a notwithstanding clause to subvert constitutional rights is not the appropriate measure that we would think should be used in this case. The listening exercise needs to happen. The division needs to be, be reduced. Okay, well, I do want to ask you then about this more general debate over uh, gender identity and school pronouns and parental consent. It hasn't been limited to Saskatchewan, of course. So why do you think we're at this point across Canada where uh, a personal issue that involves parents and children has now moved into the legislative sphere and the courts? Well, I think the issue of evolving rights is a critical one. And what we've seen over the course of several decades is evolving rights on a number of fronts, right? We've seen issues to confront systemic racism against the black community. We've seen concrete efforts to address overrepresentation of indigenous communities in the justice system. I note that just uh, uh, yesterday, the first ever premier who is indigenous of a province was elected in Canadian history. That's a historic first. Things are evolving. LGBTQ2 rights are evolving, sometimes with the court's assistance sometimes with the leadership of elected officials. There are natural, uh, as that process evolves, there are natural questions that get asked. We have obviously a lot of respect for the rights of parents to be involved in fundamental decisions of their children. I'm raising two, two boys. I want to be involved in their fundamental choices. At the same time, what the Charter is meant to do is protect vulnerable and marginalized communities and their rights. What I would say is that my role in this is quite direct. I'm sworn, unlike other cabinet ministers, to uphold the Constitution, to uphold the Charter and the rights of minorities around the country. And my response to Scott Moe on this issue of LGBTQ rights is exactly the same as my response would be to the Premier of BC about a situation of white supremacy, to the Premier of Nova Scotia about a situation that might relate to religious freedoms. It will always be in defense of people that are marginalized and people that are vulnerable because that is what I'm sworn to uphold in terms of their Charter rights. As to why we're having this conversation right now, I think we all need to look at ourselves as elected leaders and ask ourselves, are we helping to sow division right now or are we helping to reduce division? And what I'd like to see is more elected leadership reducing division by having the conversations that are necessary as opposed to short-circuiting these conversations by imposing instruments that are blunt and, and quite intrusive, such as the notwithstanding clause. Okay, lots to talk about, but we are going to have to leave it there. We're out of time. Justice Minister Arif Virani, thank you for this. Thank you. And that's going to be all for this edition of Primetime Politics. For Michael Serapio and our entire CPAC team, I'm Andrew Thompson. Thanks for watching.